Constructive Voices, the podcast for the construction people with news, views and expert interviews. Hi and welcome to Constructive Voices, this episode marking the end of September 2021. I'm Steve Randall and this time we're talking about women in construction and their vital role in sustainability. It's time really that sustainability isn't just seen as an add-on and a tick box for companies. It doesn't take much to design better. It doesn't take too much logic to do the right thing. Women in construction are playing such an important role in this. The insights of those three people all on the way. That's Emma Nicholson, the founding director of Women in Sustainable Construction and Property. Samele Arrowafor, who's the senior strategic marketing manager for SketchUp at Trimble. Plus our own Peter Finn, a.k.a. Pete the Builder. Oh, and on a related subject... This question comes up. Uh, is there a Betty the Builder that we could put out there in the world <laughs> to, to kind of compliment Bob the Builder? All that and more on this episode of Constructive Voices. What does connected construction look like? Viewpoint Construction Software connects your office, team and field. Viewpoint's cloud-based project management and field solutions help contractors of all sizes manage projects, processes and people from the design phase through to on-site completion and handover. To learn how Viewpoint is helping Wilmot Dixon, Kia, Galliford Tri and over 8,000 other construction companies deliver projects on time and on budget, visit viewpoint.com. I'm really keen that we hand over to our two fantastic guests who are chatting to Henry McDonald. But it would be rude not to say hi to Pete first. How are you, Pete? How are we doing, Steve? Great to talk to you again. Yeah, absolutely. And we're talking about one of our big topics, really. I mean, we talk a lot about technology. We talk about well-being and mental health and the other big topic. And it's a massive, massive topic, particularly as we head towards the uh, UN COP26 conference, climate change and sustainability, particularly this time. We've, we spoke before about sustainability, but in particular today, we're going to talk about the fact that women in construction are playing such an important role in, in this. And women have taken up the mantle on this probably quicker and stronger than us men have. Yeah, a fair point, Pete. And we'll hear from two of those driving change in just a minute. Constructive Voices media partner in Ireland and the United Kingdom is Construction Industry News. Since 2002, Construction Industry News has been focused on the very latest projects and developments within the UK and Ireland. So as we're focusing on women in construction this time and their key role in sustainability within the industry and wider society, let's hand over to Henry MacDonald, who's been talking to Emma Nicholson, the founding director of Women in Sustainable Construction and Property, and Sumale Aruafor, who's the senior strategic marketing manager for SketchUp at Trimble. OK, so I think I'd start first with Emma. You made a, a big category leap from university studies from English literature to construction project management. Can you chart your journey? Because it's quite interesting that move from the arts into building science and stuff. So uh, uh, that's quite an interesting kind of progression. Okay. I think my degree in English literature, it's always stayed with me. It's always resonated with me. Um, and it's been useful in terms of analysis and also report writing. And about four years ago, I self-published two poetry books in connection with my love of English literature. Um, And one of those poems actually did reference environmental issues. And the other poem I wrote about the concept of hope in the built environment. So I did study uh, Shakespearean plays and also Jacobean tragedies. And there is discord 
in Shakespeare's plays where everything doesn't run particularly smoothly. And I want to just reference here, you know, when you think about Midsummer Night's Dream or The Tempest, um, and then, you know, you consider all turns out well in the end. And this is this is pretty much the kind of thing that happens with construction yeah. projects, that uh, they can be challenging and, yeah, sometimes they can be discord as well. But hopefully at the end of the project, you know, with the right governance and everything in place, they turn out well. So, it, I mean, it's quite tricky to kind of summarise my 22-year uh, career, but I was a late comer to the industry and I was 28 years old when I came into the industry. And prior to that, I was a trainee project manager uh, when I was about 28 years old. And, and prior, sorry, prior to that, I, I followed my love of English literature and I was involved following my degree in various roles in advertising. I worked as an interior design assistant on high-spec properties in Knightsbridge and also South Kensington in London. And I undertook a part-time uh, master's degree in construction project management while working in project management in the early stages of my career. So construction law uh, was a huge step and a big, quite big challenge, uh, a move away from Victorian poetry. Your interest in buildings was also sparked in a way by journalism. Can you elaborate on that? I nearly pursued a career in periodical journalism and I spent a couple of weeks I was working for L Decoration uh, magazine to just trial it out and to see if that's an area I wanted to go into. It was fun, it was interesting, but it wasn't quite for me. And this actually led to a, a role as an interior design assistant when I was working with architects. And it was here that my appreciation of buildings and architecture really began. And I recall I had um, two interview choices, two, two options. One was to be an advertising executive assistant and the other was a trainee project manager route. And I only turned up to the one interview, which was the right choice, the trainee project manager role. And this is back in 1998. And I'd encourage any young woman, actually, no matter what age, to consider a career in the built environment, no matter what sector that you come from or how late it is, because it's such a varied and challenging career. And I can now look back on some of the incredible projects that I have worked on and know that these have been legacy projects. It hasn't been transient, say, like perhaps a career like advertising, you know, might basically, you know, you don't really leave a footprint in the sand. An example of this is the uh, roof restoration, the Lees Art Gallery and the Lees Library that I worked on. And also um, I worked on the London 2012 Games, Olympic and Paralympic Games. So these were things that, you leave a legacy for us, so to speak. Yes, absolutely. Yes. I, I, I feel like I was privileged to to work on those projects. And I can go to, into the city of Leeds where I now work and I think, yeah, I, I was part of that. I was part of that legacy where we had to replace the, the glazing on the roof, which will last hopefully a good 50 to 100 years. Who knows? Sumele, how long have you been working in the construction industry? and explain your pathway into the industry. I kicked off my career by studying architecture at undergraduate and postgraduate level and, you know, did some internships, worked at Foster and Partners and then worked also in Nigeria, architectural practices here and there. But when I graduated from my undergraduate degree, it was right slam in the middle of a recession. Which recession was that? Was that the financial crash? The financial crash, yeah, Mm -hmm. 2009, 2008, 2009. Um, And and there there were no jobs. It was like, you know, you just finished this wonderful internship at Foster and Partners and you're like, I see the glimmering path. I know exactly where I'm going. 
And then there's a crash and there's nowhere to go. You know, they're making people redundant and they have an obligation to take those people back before they hire new people. And so it's like, what do I do with my life? And so similar to Emma, I went into advertising and branding. um, And that just goes to show, you know, like you said, I think no matter what career you've come from, there's always a route out and into other careers and um, always just take those opportunities as they come. And I would say that served me because the role that I'm in now is almost one of like evangelism and advocacy. And so writing and positioning and messaging is super important for putting your message across, especially something as um, important and vital as sustainability. Um, And so I did that for a bit. And then I went straight back to do my postgrad degree in architecture, Um, finished that up. Similar to Emma, did a certificate in interior design um, at at KLC School of Design in Chelsea. And I thought maybe this could be a snazzy, you know, cool thing to do because the projects you're working on, similar to Emma, again, are amazing homes in Knightsbridge and, um, and South Kensington and Notting Hill. And, you know, it's like, it's glittery, it's, it's tantalizing. Um, and I did it for a little while, you know, I was, I was, I, I was enjoying the projects because the budgets were limitless, but in reality, that's not what life is for most people. Um, and so I got the opportunity to take an internship at Sapphira, um, which was a startup for sustainable technology. And so they were creating this software, which for me was mind-blowing. Uh, it was a novel software for building performance analysis. But unlike um, tools like IES, which are super established, you don't use it at the end of your design process. You actually use it at the start of the design process. And so as you're forming your shapes and you're creating things, you can start to test immediately what kind of energy use am I looking at with this form that I've chosen? And how does it compare to this other shape and this other shape? And if I put a donut in the middle, how does that change things? And if I turn it this way? And so it was a really exciting um, prospect for me because my understanding of sustainability was more esoteric whilst I was studying. But this like, got you down to the nitty gritty. Like, what does it actually mean? in measurable terms for a building to be more sustainable than another building. Um, And so that was kind of my my entryway into more sustainable design and sustainable analysis. Um, And Sapphire got acquired by Trimble, um, where I I currently work today uh, in 2016. And I've kind of taken multiple roles there since, kind of moving from architectural um, design associate to like marketing manager and senior marketing manager and strategic marketing. And so um, I, f- I feel like my background has kind of prepared me for the place where I am today. And like Emma said, I'd like to echo that there is no limitation to taking on a new challenge and kind of jumping in. Everything stitches together to kind of help you do your job the best way possible. But I think passion um, a passion for what you're doing is the most crucial thing. And um, yeah, I think I think sustainability is, is definitely worth uh, the devotion of our careers. Now, before we, we get in deeper into sustainability, I just want to go back a bit. You talked about, you know, your experience working in West London, but you also mentioned Nigeria. Yes. How important was that? I mean, what impact has that had, that experience on your career and what how you see the business? 
That's a great, that's a great question. Um, So I'm Nigerian, born and born and bred in Nigeria. I moved to the UK when I was 18 for university. Um, And so most of my young uh, life and young adult life was spent there. Um, And so the climate is different. The the needs are different. Um, I remember when I was quite young, uh, we moved into a new home and um, there was this beautiful stairway that led upstairs and nothing too fancy. Um, what was great about it was that it had these um, uh, aerated blocks and you had gaps in, in the block that created an amazing light pattern. But also it was the coolest place in the entire house. And so the contrast from the hot sun outside into that cool space with the beautiful light and the shadows, that was where my love for architecture was sparked. The play of light, the experience of moving through space, but also the consideration for how people feel in a space, the comfort, um, occupant comfort. You know, when I look back, it's just like that was the serendipitous moment that sparked the love for me. And then kind of watching Kevin McLeod and Grand Designs like over and over and over again, um, it just it just made it feel like, yeah, I think this is something that I would love to do. I, I already had a knack for, you know, the calculation side of things, but I also had uh, a father who was a journalist um, and also an advertising person. So everything just kind of married together right. in the right, you know, in the right way to make a really, really cool career for me. So, yeah, um, that's that's kind of the genesis of things. And and it, it still it still inspires me because it doesn't take much to design better. It doesn't take too much logic to do the right thing. I think understanding of space and context can make a massive impact on how we design. And I think as architects, as people in the built environment, I think just that consciousness of context and a care for the world is kind of the starting point of any project that wants to be sustainable. Indeed, I find that bucolic memory of the the light in the blocks mm. very, very fetching. Mm. Um, your work in architecture and design and so on, how do you think these skills can be harnessed to promote sustainable building projects? For me, the question that I, I feel like I, I need to ask my colleagues all the time is, can you design buildings that deliver you know, the tectonic ideas of architecture, so materiality and constructability, um, but still think about how you cater to the comfort and the spatial needs of occupants and balance that with how you use Earth's resources. And I think, yes, we can. And we need to with even more intention than ever before because the impact of our, our work is, is more crucial than ever. And I know we'll talk a little bit more about IPCC report in a bit, but I feel like architects have a really unique role in shaping the built environment. The spaces that they create are almost like the backdrop for the theater of humanity, but then they use real things, right? They use real resources. You know, we have the ability to influence the ways that people live you know, so if you want people to recycle and you don't kind of think about, well, where are the recycling bins going to live? Where does that go to in, within the supply chain of, of waste management? Just thinking about how things kind of wrap back together. So going back from like the mundane everyday living, how effective and how comfortable are the spaces that you're making for people? How much daylight are they getting versus artificial light? Of course, if you're, if you're designing, a, say, for example, a lab, you don't need daylight, right? 
right? But if it's a living space or an office space, how much daylight are you giving people and how can they, you know, regulate that? Um, are you putting blinds in? Is it automated? All of these specifications, are the windows openable or are they always going to be shut? Can they use natural ventilation? Are we always going to be re relying on air conditioning? And the day that the air conditioning breaks, like what does everybody do? plug in a fan and on the floor and use a bit more energy. And it's these types of things that, you know, as architects, we have the ability to make those choices, those really important choices really early, early on. And so I feel like just by considering the size, the type and the placement of your glazing or your shading, you could make a building daily and naturally ventilated for maybe three months more in the year um, okay. than if you didn't consider it at all. And in inevitably that cuts down utility bills for the owner of the building, but it also means that they'll burn less fossil fuels. And that just helps us as a, as a global community manage the resources that we have a bit more. So I think material choices, design choices, when architects do it right, you get that sustainable benefit, but also you reduce rework on projects. Like when you think about things a little bit earlier, things aren't value engineered at the end of your project, right? You're, you've already thought through the processes. Everything is kind of intricately stitched together so that when you come to pricing it up or getting bids out, it's very difficult to dismantle the beauty of what you've created because you've thought through how it impacts energy use, how it impacts the client's budget and all of those things. So um, I think I think there's a lot that, that an architect can contribute um, in making more sustainable buildings, certainly. And of course, not just sustainability, we're living in the, the COVID or post-COVID age. Mm. Ventilation mm. is going to be super important. <laughs> it's going to be mm. yeah. central to thinking for a very long time to come. A hundred percent agree with you. Um, and I, I don't I don't know that any other time has taught us that um, than in the past one and a half years. Um, the value of our homes, uh, there's no there was nowhere else to go. Right. And so how comfortable is your home in the middle of winter and in the middle of summer? And how do you kind of transition between those two seasons? So I think, yeah, architects. Yeah. Vital. Absolutely vital. In terms of the industry, where are you now both based what numerous roles do you play in terms of general sustainability in the business? So, Henry, yeah, I, I work part time uh, from home. I also work in the Leeds office of a global property and construction consultancy. Um, and I'm part of an infrastructure team. I'm currently working on a large university estate uh, and I'm supporting them with uh, their net zero journey by a certain target date. So, this involves programme uh, and strategy support with regards to removing gas from the estate. And in terms of industry and my sustainability credentials, I'm a fellow of the Institute of Environmental Management Assessment. I'm also a chartered environmentalist and I'm a member of the Women's Engineering Society Climate Emergency Group. I've just completed a really, really interesting course, which is with the University of Cambridge. It's um, an eight-week course and it's called Business and Climate Change Towards a Net Zero with the uh, Institute for Sustainability Leadership. And I've also previously, I've been a chair for IEMA, that's the Institute of Environmental Management Assessment, the Auction Humber Steering Group for four years. And I helped organise various CPD events for them. And I'm currently a member for the Zero Carbon Transport Group in my hometown of Harrogate, where we're pushing for Car Free Fridays, uh, which is voluntary, but it's about trying to raise that awareness, really, um, to reduce carbon emissions in um, the local community. You also are a sustainability ambassador. What does that entail? Yeah, I mean, sustainability can also involve 
equality, diversity and inclusion. That is, I think it's UN goal number five, which covers gender equality. So I am championing a lot in terms of diversity inclusion. I'm, I'm an ambassador for the Institute of Directors in terms of equality, diversity, inclusion. And I also promote EDI and embedding that within uh, the Women's Engineering Society. And I'm also on the EDI Specialist Interest Group with the Charter Institute of Building. I've also kind of got a link with the United Nations Association in Harrogate, and I've attended um, one or two of their events as well. And I'm also um, a member of the Women's Engineering Society Climate Emergency Group that I've mentioned. And they are doing some fantastic work on developing various webinars up to COP26. And so I do try and attend their, their meetings as well. So I, I, I also push the agenda as well as founding director of Women in Sustainable Construction and Property, um, which I'll talk about a bit later. But that's now quite nearly um, 1,400 members set it up on LinkedIn uh, back in 2010. And that has just kind of grown over the last 10 years and, um, you know, just use it for networking. And it, I suppose it's become international as well. So it's interesting to see posts from people, not just in the UK, but also internationally too. And Somalia, I mean, you're, where are you now? What are the organisations you're involved with? What does that entail? Yeah, I have to say that Emma's CV is phenomenal. And, you know, oh, I, you. I will be definitely <laughs> tracking some of the organizations that you're part of. I, I I wouldn't say that I'm as involved as Emma is, unfortunately, but this gives me a lot of spark to try and really latch on to some of these um, initiatives and just see where I can fit myself in. But within the role that I currently play, um, I would say that there are very few women within the space that I that I occupy. So having a knowledge of, um, you know, architect, an architectural background, but also slant on sustainability. And so my role and, uh, encompasses writing a lot about um, our customer successes. So this means that I'm constantly in contact with our industry and folks that are doing great work globally. So Trimble is a global company and a lot of our customers are across the globe. So India. America, here in the UK and across Europe. Um, and so a lot of the work that I do is capturing those successes and actually evangelizing them back to the world and saying, hey, this is possible. It's not just doom and gloom. Um, there is work being done and there is hope for us to actually get it done and get that impact. So, um, you know, there are projects where uh, from small ones where one of our customers has used SketchUp and Sapphire to kind of design the entire building, but then um, design a net zero building that where they have a utility bill of about $12 a year, which is ridiculous. Wow. Um, and then you you have on the, on the opposite spectrum, you have ginormous projects where it's like, you know, an academy or a campus for for a corporate uh, uh, body, but they're they're reporting 95 percent occupant um, satisfaction because they've designed a net zero building. So for me, it's it's a matter of capturing those successes and putting it back to the world to make sure that people see that this work is happening um, and that they can get involved in little ways. So making sure that. We put that um, the knowledge sharing out there, make sure that people know that there are tools out there to help them do this work, even if it's a small increment. But with every project that you test out this technology on, you can do better. You can deliver better um, speaking up and then also just being you know, curious and wanting to learn more and more about what's going on in industry, I think, is part of 
um, what being a sustainability ambassador entails. Give me two examples of those successes, you know, and contrasting from, if you like, the big and the small. Right. Yeah, sure. Happy to do that. So um, one of them um, is with JLG Architects. They're a North America-based practice. Um, They have this ethos of thinking about it as instead of designing a building like a stack of pancakes and then pouring sustainability as a syrup on top of it, what they do is mix the syrup into the butter. That's literally a quote from um, their sustainable design Mm -hmm. principle, right? And I think it's just so, it just makes sense, right? It's it's just, it's sweet for everybody. Nobody misses a piece that has, you know, the syrup on it, right? Um, But essentially what they did was roll out um, this tool that Sapphire that I worked with and and is now owned by Trimble. Um, They rolled it out across their entire design team, unheard of. For me, that was phenomenal in the first place. But it means that they made sustainability a part of their goal, their ethos, the way that they just work. Um, It's not an add-on right at the end. Um, And so they got their people thinking about just simple metrics like EUI, so energy use intensity, what's a typical one, what should you be aiming for in terms of reducing and how do you deliver really good EUI? And then things like spatial daylight autonomy, how how much of the day um, will this space receive natural light versus us turning on a a lamp or whatever? And so with one of their buildings that they've delivered, it's it's the first lead platinum building in North Dakota. Um, They were able to achieve that net zero status, um, but then they were able to analyze the entire project. They reduced the client's cost by about a million dollars. They reduced energy use by about 53%. They achieved zero fossil fuel use on this building for heating and cooling. Phenomenal. And then they actually reported a 97% um, user satisfaction rating. That just, you know, it just makes sense for everybody. The, The owner of the building wins. The users of the building win, the earth wins, and then JLG Architects also gets a return customer automatically. Like if they're ever going to build anything else, they're not going to go anywhere else. They're going to come back to that particular architect. So I think that particular example just like epitomizes the economy and how it can work for everyone. But but it's, it's not more difficult to design sustainably. I refuse to agree that that's the case. It is easy to design sustainability. We just have to make it front of mind and start early and keep at it and do the work that's required to deliver it. And everybody wins in the end. I guess one more thing that I might add is, you know, with with the smaller building that I mentioned, um, they also use SketchUp and Sapphire to model from the very beginning. And and where was the smaller building? Where was it based? This one was in Iowa, which is also in North America. Um, And they, they, they had a very small budget for this project. So they weren't doing anything fancy. I think this was a family home. Um, they they tested lots of different forms. This one was, uh, you know, the impact was got from architectural design. So what kind of form do we want to go for? How do we simplify the internal layout to make sure that you're not using up more material than you need to use and you're not creating more junctions than you need to do? Um, you have thermal barriers that actually connect across board, but it's not just the design. It's actually enforcing the value of the design that you've created on site so that what you think you want to execute is actually executed on site and then you get the building that you actually desire. And so that one was a real tight collaboration between the client, the owner of the building and the architect. And they were able to achieve um, those stunning annual capital costs. So yeah, uh, amazing, amazing projects that just keep 
giving me the hope that it is possible for us to design really well, uh, not not sacrifice architectural integrity, um, but still achieve sustainability and keep the world kind of going around its axis and not you know destroying all that all that we we live in. Let's talk about the IPCC report and the pressures on the industry for change that are bound to emerge in Glasgow this November. What, what do you think are the are going to be the pressures specifically on construction? In lead up to COP26, there's been a real plethora of webinars mm-hmm. from organisations and institutes such as IEMA on sure, environmental sure. matters, and it's going to increase. We're going to see more and mm-hmm. more. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think we need more sustainability ambassadors. We need more chartered environmentalists. And I do believe that environmental management and sustainability is such an interesting career for a young person. I, sh- I shouldn't say, say just young, anybody, anybody, any age, just to, to, to move into. I think at COP26, mm-hmm. we know that there will be many sustainability representatives mm-hmm. and also ambassadors taking part. There's a climate change mm-hmm. festival it's kind of like a fringe for COP26, and there are going to be so many events happening in local towns, in local cities. So, for example, I mentioned about Zero Carbon Harrogate as well. They're doing some fantastic initiatives in the lead up. You know, uh, for example, the local college in Harrogate is, is getting involved with environmental activities. It's important about raising awareness, educating others, and imparting the demands of the IPCC report in a way that can be understood and delivered appropriately. So I think as well, people are posting things out on LinkedIn and the messages is, is getting out. And it's, chi- it's as, as you say, it's timing. It's timing the demands of the IPCC report. It's just got so many sort of reaching out in so many different ways. And I think what's so exciting is the um, just the enthusiasm the energy you know and innovation seeing innovation come through I don't know if you have anything to add to that I'm sure you do uh, Samela yeah I I took a look at the the IPCC report not the entire thing because there's thousands of pages but the technical summaries and um, some of the things that I I saw in there were you know the fact that buildings and the construction sector is responsible for over a third of the global final energy consumption and nearly 40 percent of total direct and indirect CO2 emissions, Mm. our industry is responsible for a third of energy use, final energy consumption, and 40% of emissions, CO2 emissions. That tells me that, you know, the work that we're doing, the built environment has a ginormous impact on it. And so as, as long as we keep dialing in these ideas about delivering better buildings, delivering more sustainable buildings, we can have a greater impact on the world's climate. And so if we keep burning fossil fuels just to keep people comfortable and to power the technologies that support modern life, um, we're just going to be heading in, in, in off, off a cliff at some point. But um, I feel like the report and, the, and the, the conferences that are coming up are almost like a, a battle cry to, hey, we can do much more. Like everybody get involved, get your hand on the wheel and let's drive this thing in the opposite direction. And there is still hope. Um, but I think that the only thing that I would add to that is that for as long as we don't track our use um, or our potential energy use as we design and as we build, if we don't track and if we don't check what we're creating and how that's impacting the world, we will not measure it and we will not understand the impact and we will not be able to dial it back. So for me, I feel like if I had 
one um, stand where I could scream it from the rooftops is get the technology. Once upon a time, that technology didn't exist to track what we're doing and how we're doing it, what it's what impact it's having on the world. But get the technology that's now available um, to track that potential energy use, to track that CO2 emission use, to track embodied carbon. Get the technology, use it track what you're doing and try to do better with each project, with each step of your design phase, all the way through to construction. Just keep doing the work um, because there is still hope and that the little drops make a mighty ocean, as long as everybody's contributing. Given both of your depth of your experience in construction, in the, in the building industry, do you think the big forces in the business get it? Do you think they've bought into this idea? Maybe not. Um, but I think this is where we need to also speak their language. Right. And, and this is what I mean by that. We need to speak to the base goal of every business. It's profits. Uh, unless they're uh, unless they're, in, they're, they're a nonprofit, they're thinking about profits. They're thinking about maintaining their practice, getting return business and a potential incentive for sustainable design is the fact that you will get more investment in buildings that are green in buildings that are more sustainable than ever before. There are so many investor platforms that are checking to see what value is this project bringing to the environment, to sustainability. And so if we can start to kind of dial into the frequency of the people who make the decisions, right, um, that, that can steer things one way or another, I feel like you can start to show them as long as you can showcase value for business, but then also get the value for the earth, the value for the occupants. I think that's where we start to turn things around. And I think we will talk a little bit more about how women in the industry yep. can impact that as well. I feel like I've seen this report by McKinsey and Co. where they say that the most gender diverse companies are 25% more likely to achieve above average profitability. Why would you not want to have a more diverse workforce if you can achieve 25% more profitability than the standard business? It just makes sense, right? So the more that these reports come out and these things are evangelized and put out in the world, the more likely people are to, to kind of be incentivized um, unfortunately, selfishly for profitable gains. And I don't blame everyone, anyone, you know, you need to make the money, you need to survive, everybody needs to live a good life, such and such. But whilst we're doing it, could we do it in such a way that it doesn't impact the world negatively and actually contributes positively to what, what we live behind for future generations? So I think speaking their language, thinking the way that they think and positioning things in such a way that it makes sense to them, there is a no-brainer. That brings me to the next question, really. I mean, how can women in the industry push for sustainable change? I think women can really push for sustainable change by expressing their views in a number of ways. Obviously, within a company, yes, it's so important, but also outside Excelli through, through joining a committee and an institute such as um, the likes of the Institute of Environmental Management Assessment. I'm talking here about being panellists as well. So London builds. Um, which is happening this year, later this year, has got, I'm, I'm really delighted to say, 50% coverage of women speakers at the expo this year. So it's time really that sustainability isn't just seen as an add-on and a tick box for companies. It needs to be the forefront, really, of all agendas. Women in boards in particular, in peer positions with sustainability knowledge 
need to push and influence the agenda. For example, I think there should be more fossil-free construction sites, and I'd also like there to be analysis of embodied carbon. Uh, I think this needs to be more inherent in project design and also architecture as well, as well as inclusion of circular economy principles in terms of practical suggestions, putting forward to move the dial forward. I like to see legislation push that more in terms of fossil-free sites, uh, particularly with regards to contractors and so on. But at the moment, I don't know, it's possibly more voluntary. I'd certainly like to see a step change in that. Small, if you have anything to add to that? All awesome points. I think um, I might just reiterate a couple of things that I, I mentioned earlier is, is to embrace technology, um, back up your recommendations with data, because without the data, it just feels like one is pulling ideas out of nowhere and, and kind of, you know, a, a tree hugger and all of that. But these things are, they are crucial, they are critical um, to the future of our world. And so where there is data that's irrefutable, people will shift. Um, um, when we're making material specifications, could you assess how that impacts the building, how that impacts the, you know, the usability of the building or the uh, longevity of that building? Um, could you check to make sure that that's, that's the right recommendation and show that, you know, when you have your design charades, your design crits and all of that stuff, make sure that you're backing up what you recommend with the data that it needs um, to stand up in front of a panel of people making that decision. Is it possible to sign up for initiatives and things that are out there already? For example, the Architecture 2020-30 goal that has asked people to, to kind of design buildings that use 75% less energy than a typical building of that size. And I think it's heading to 80% now. Could you sign up for things like that, but voluntarily, just like um, Emma said, sign up for it voluntarily, test it out on a project. If you have the, the power to kind of direct one small project and make a change and make that case on that project, then you could show how it's easy to do that work. And I think it has to be a proactive effort. I think the last thing that I would add is tell of the wins as well as the matters of urgency. Um, a lot of the time, you know, most people will tell about the direness of where we are. And it's true. It's important not to shut our eyes to the reality of where we are. But I think that when you give, just like, you know, if anybody has kids, when you give them some medicine, you kind of back it up with some, you know, a small treat to kind of let it go down well, a little better. I would say that the same principle applies to things that are so urgent and so dangerous and so critical. Showcase the good. Showcase the things that are wins, the, the strides that people have taken, the small steps that add up to make, make a difference. Um, give people hope, I think, is the most important thing, that there is a point, right? Sometimes you think to yourself, you hear in the news, ah, oh, there's recycling, but actually ends up getting dumped in an incinerator. What is the point of recycling? Is there a different story that we could tell? Is there a different country that's doing it better that we could showcase and say, hey, we, we might not be doing it right right now, but look at this country. They're doing this and they're getting these results. And I think just always reminding people that there is a point to the work that we're doing is super important. So for me, I would say that that's how women can keep pushing in small and big and tangible ways. I mean, again, you've kind of segued into the next question in a sense. <laughs> Hi. Oops. Uh, well, that's fine. That's good. <laughs> uh, and it is about, you know, do you think women who are in the industry now, and in what was once, of course, a very male-dominated industry, construction, are more aware, eco-aware, more sustainable-aware, and are bringing that into 
the business. Emma? Well, I've been in the industry about over 22 years, and I think that there's definitely been a rise of women in sustainability kind of careers. And I think increasingly we're going to see more women in leadership roles over the next five to 10 years in, in the future. And I've also seen groups like my own, because I set up a, net, a network platform like Women in Sustainable Construction Property way back in 2010, 2011, uh, which has grown. And there are other groups as well that have developed, such as mine, there's Women in BRE, there's WIBSI, which is you know associated with SIBSI, there's Women in Planning, there's Women in Sustainability. So there's quite a few of these network groups that have now become very, very established. And I think more and more businesses are going to realise, as Molly said, you know, the need for diversity within the organisations. We are going to see more women in, hopefully, in leadership roles and also getting on board with regards to the net zero journey. Uh, It's important for organisations to be on board and to be leaders uh, rather than as followers, because otherwise they're just going to get swept along by legislation. The question is, does your business that you work for, does it want to be a leader or does it want to be a follower with regards to sustainability? Because now is the time. Now is really the time to get on board. And having studied the course at University of Cambridge uh, with regards to the net zero journey, I can really justify that and back that up. That um, And seeing the incredible innovative case studies through that course and through the international networking that the course has brought, really, there's so much happening out there now. So it's very exciting. I think one thing that potentially Emma was alluding to is um, that there's been a rise in the number of women within the construction industry over the years. And I have to I have to back that up. When I was studying for architecture, there were there were a handful of us girls on the course um, by the first year, a good chunk of them dropped off the course. And so I tend to be very cautious with generalizations because it then places a silent burden on a certain group to effect change. I think a lot of times a passion for sustainability tends to be driven by a desire to improve the fidelity of the Earth's environments and resources. Sometimes sometimes people are naturally sensitized to touch the Earth lightly. Other people couldn't care less, haven't thought about it not because they don't care. It's just not something that, you know, taps their minds in any way. But some people are just really, really um, very keen to leave a livable world for the coming generation. Sometimes because maybe because women bear children and there's an extrapolation that they care more about the earth and then they want to live a legacy. But, you know, children are are, are crafted by fathers and mothers, men and women. And, and um, I feel like the job of preserving the world is for everyone and there just needs to be even more room on the table the decision makers the leadership just like Emma was talking about there needs to be more room for women at those uh, levels of authority because you only understand your lived experience as a man you will understand your lived experience or you will extrapolate based on a wife or a mother or a sister it's what you observe that you will know and so i think that for us to collectively contribute all of our ideas all of our innate uh, natural knowledge and and um, ways of thinking everyone needs to come on the table and do that work and space needs to be made for women to contribute to that conversation and to move that forward although construction is still very male dominated i would 
say. Um, uh, there are aspects of it that are not really uh, women friendly. The, the branding of you know construction on site is not particularly has not historically been unbiased. It's it's not been diverse, and so I think there's still mm-hmm. a lot of work to be done there. Um, but the sensitivity, sponsorship, and advocacy of men will still be required so that we can get to our, our destination a lot quicker and that we can transform the world a lot quicker. So I think it's it's going to be a joint effort always, but I feel like there is so much unlocked potential with women coming into the industry. So much knowledge, so much wisdom, so much um, uh, natural care for the world that isn't being tapped. And I feel like there's so much that we can still do to shift that dial and make things more diverse um, for women in the industry. Are there specific projects you can think of where there is a heavy female input and be a sustainable culture, if you like, or a, or sustainability is one of the driving forces behind it? Yeah, sure. For me, and I know it was a little while ago now, it has to be the London 2012 Olympic and Paralympic Games. So I was seconded to a local sustainability team while I worked for an international consultancy, Wide Level Butnell. And here, I think there are a number of women that really help shape the legacy uh, and also help to drive sustainability in games. And the names that come to mind to me are um, Kirsten Henson of KLH Sustainability, also Sue Riddleston of BioRegional, who has developed the One Planet Theory and is now OBE. And when I worked for the local department, I worked with some really fantastic, talented women with sustainability backgrounds in my team. We've now gone on to do really good, you know, really interesting projects as well. Together, we, we you know, obviously working alongside men and um, we drove some really ambitious results with regards to zero waste uh, to landfill. There was very ambitious KPIs, which I helped to also project manage and monitor. And I think just generally there was just great energy and a huge team ethos to make the games really successful. So sustainability was implemented. It was integrated into many of the guidance and um, project delivery requirements. And we uh, we challenged the suppliers as well on sustainability to ensure that they complied. So for me, that was a specific project that I can think of. Um, so I have a couple of people in mind um, that I've seen through my work, like reviewing uh, projects that people are doing using um, some of the tools that I'm involved in. But somebody a little bit closer to home is Dr. Chiko Ngbe. She's a doctoral researcher here in the UK, um, and she works very closely with um, really on amazing projects. Um, so she's based in, in Salford University, but she her focus is inclusive design, which also includes sustainable design and, um, and lots of really amazing projects. So thinking about things about population aging, um, inclusivity. Um, and I think like Emma alluded to earlier, sustainability is a much wider thing than just, you know, uh, building energy and all and, and embodied carbon. It's, it's all about getting everybody within the, the, the global population to feel included within the things that we create. Another person who's not quite on this side of the pond is a lady called Kylene Rockwell, and she's a lead AP um, performance analysis at HKS Architects. And she's probably one of very few women that I've seen in that space who's actually 
training architects on how to do um, sustainable design by using technology, early stage energy modeling. And she's part of their sustainability design green team. And so for me, it's been a bit rare for me to engage with lots of women within the industry. Unfortunately, sad to say that, but it's been the reality of my experience so far. Um, But those two people I feel like are you know, kind of unicorns, young women who are really trying to make a difference um, within their niche roles. So, I suppose finally, my final question is your vision of where you would like construction to be, mm. both in terms of female participation and equality and mm. also sustainability. I would imagine, I would love, love, love um, to see great accessibility into the industry to start with. Um, so education, as one one um, facet of that and then academia as the other facet of that. So I hope that in the next two decades, there will be clear pathways for, for people or for women to, to enter into the workforce, that it will be possible for, for them to be educated and shown that it is possible for women to be within the industry. So it's the toys, it's the books, it's the programs. Is there a, yeah. uh, is there a Betty the Builder that we could put out there in the <laughs> world <laughs> to kind of compliment Bob the Builder? Um, I think it's from that level, it's from that age that you start to influence those um, perceptions that this is for a man, this is for a woman, and it is open to everybody. Books and innovative technologies, that those things are even more accessible. Trimble does this thing with its tech labs where it collaborates with universities and actually um, offers its technology to to students. And, And so there's a lot of symbiosis between this is what is innovative in industry, but what you're learning actually matches up with what is what is needed in the world. So I think more initiatives like that, that open up these technologies to people? Is it laser scanners? Is it software? Whatever it is that would um, spark that love and that joy for the industry, I would love to see that being more uh, more shared. Are there apprenticeships and um, things that lead into male-dominated degrees? Um, are there professionals that go back and inspire people? My hope is that we'll have even more women teaching within our industry um, and showing people that it is possible to rise to the top of, um, of the game and still come back and give back to the world and show people how to get there as well. The second thing that major like headline would be even greater visibility, mainstream visibility of for women and representation of women within the industry. So it's about age. So women of all ages being represented in construction, women of all races being you know, represented in construction, different backgrounds, whatever it may be. Um, you know, imagine more Sarah Binney's, more Emma's across the world who are championing things and, you know, on panels and setting up, you know, all sorts of different initiatives. Is there a female Kevin McLeod that could, in, in, you know, inspire somebody to join the industry in the future? Maybe it's you, Emma, maybe it's me, maybe it's it's one of somebody <laughs> in the industry today. Who, who could it be? It could be any one of us, right? And the, the space is open. Yeah, It's so open. And I think it's, yeah. it's us yeah. who are here today to see the opportunities um, and not shrink back from them because, mm. who am I qualified? And, and it's more of like, how would this inspire the next generation? Stepping into those shoes, not just for self, but because it can make a difference for those who are coming behind us. And the last thing I will I will touch on is um, 
the retention of, of female construction workforce across all life stages. I think it's one thing to enter into the field. It's another thing to stay there um, and actually make a difference. I think um, construction has the lowest proportion of women-owned firms today. Um, that means that you know less women are involved in the decision-making or in the economy of things and the grand economy of things. Um, maybe as we have a labor shortage across the world today, it's an opportunity for um, previously overlooked groups to actually join the workforce. And, 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 and I hope that, you know, you know, with every recession or whatever it is that comes around or pandemic or Brexit that happens, that it creates an opportunity for those who have been overlooked to actually join in and make a difference in our industry. Yeah, for me, I think the next two decades are going to be about the rise of women in sustainability, in construction and in leadership roles. Just watch this space. We have got so many, so many talented women out there and we are going to see more female bosses, more female project directors who will be starting out as directors early in their careers. And I just would love to see that. And also that firms are nurturing the talent, uh, that they, they recognise their abilities. So my vision is to see a great increase of female participation in the construction industry, but it needs to start early at school even primary school, with regards to making children aware of the diversity of jobs in the construction industry and also sustainability careers. There needs to be more STEM ambassadors within organisations that can go out and spread the word to school children. And there needs to be a step change to avoid shortage of skills and also to address climate change needs. An interesting book by Susie Ramroop, Be the Leader You Want to See. So it's an interesting book uh, that I have read. Um, and I just want to recommend that for uh, consideration to, uh, to the listeners. You know, we're all learning all the time. And as I say, it's never too late to make a start in terms of the career. And don't be afraid of failure. You can become more resilient and stronger through any lessons that you have learned. Absolutely agree. Imposter syndrome is real, but everywhere where you are, you are meant to be. So take the space and use it for something that matters. Um, I, I hope that we continue to see women celebrated and showcased, their talent um, celebrated and showcased. Our thanks to Samele and Emma talking to Henry MacDonald about the role of women in sustainability and the construction industry generally. We'll talk more about that with Pete the Builder in just a moment. We're excited to announce the first ever Global Women in Construction virtual event happening on the 3rd and 4th of November 2021. This will be a quarterly event along with a LinkedIn group for you to have ongoing networking opportunities. Our global guests will be discussing how women globally can collaborate to create sustainable change, especially in light of the IPCC report. Why corporate social responsibility should be at the heart of your business. Construction contracts and collections for women, the backbone of the construction industry. And last, but certainly not least, Project Management 101 and becoming a certified construction project manager. To discover more, go to our website, constructive-voices.com. The Global Women in Construction virtual event is sponsored by Commercial Construction Coffee Talk, Commercial Construction and Renovation Magazine, and Constructive Voices. 
Well, Pete, two great guests talking to Henry and that big event coming up in November. I know you're a big supporter of the role that women have in construction and that you feel that they really are going to push forward with the sustainability agenda. Without a shadow of a doubt, to see women in construction is is something that I have always been supportive of. But to see women taking this subject on and taking this challenge on, I think is absolutely necessary and it's absolutely absolutely going to be beneficial for us because the global situation is such a big challenge that it's it's probably the biggest challenge that us as humans will face going forward and could possibly have ever uh, faced and i know that sounds a little bit like the the first scene in a disaster movie but you know it's real lads like i mean we've had this report has come out from the ipcc now there's deadlines there's targets that we've got to reach and to reach those targets we've got to be proactive and we've got to put systems in place and we've got to make sure that people listen and you know what the women of this world have stepped up if you look at at the, the groups all around the world and you look at who is driving them the ceos on an awful lot of these councils are women i think over 50 percent of the ceos on on, on the the, uh, the green bill councils are female and are really pushing this subject forward And it's great to see. And you know what? We absolutely need it. Yeah, definitely. And I think as part of the the wider diversity and inclusion topic that we, again, have have talked about already and will continue to talk about on this podcast, you know, getting perspectives from all kinds of different people, whether they're women, whether they're from different cultures and backgrounds, disabled people who have a lot to offer as well in, in how we need to construct things that are right for everybody and right for the future that we're all facing. And I think this this plays into that perfectly because, as you set out, women have been working in the areas of sustainability for many, many years, driving the agenda in many cases and bringing that into the fore in construction is, is going to be a big part of getting this right. 100% correct. And we all have a part to play. There's just no doubt about that. Um, no matter who you are, where you live and what you do. But there's two people in my life that I listen to the most, and that's my wife and my mother. And when they speak, I listen. Um, <laughs> the, the strength of a, of a female's perspective can never be underestimated. And I really do feel that this could be our strongest card that we have to fight this battle because when us men look at stuff, sometimes we can be a little bit too macho. We can be a little bit too bullish about how we do stuff. And a perspective, you used that word a second ago, Stephen, that is the key. It's perspectives from everybody involved. It's from the young, the old, the females, the males. Everybody has got a role to play. We need to get to carbon neutral as soon as we possibly can. We need to get to a situation where we're living our everyday lives in a way that is allowing the planet to basically to function the way that it always has. We've got to do everything that we can to pull this back. And how we're going to do that is by having everybody on board. And we need we need leaders. We need driving forces. And that's what we're starting to see now. We're starting to see that people are coming together. And um, women in particular are taking a really, really proactive and strong role in this. If we were to relate our global challenge to a construction project, we need people looking at it from all different angles. We need to make sure that it's obviously the key words, sustainable. We need to be able to live on this planet and make sure that as the way that we live and the way that we function is allowing our planet to breathe. It's allowing our planet to function as it always has. We have to stop being a destructive element in this whole environment. And we do have to claw back. We've gone too far at this stage. And it's not a case of going, oh, well, we must stop soon. We need to stop immediately. We need to stop the CO2 gases from getting out into the environment and we need to pull back. So how do we do that? 
we work together as a group and we make sure that targets are set. And again, the women of the world have taken key roles in, in this. And I'm talking about, when I say women of the world, I mean every part of the world. If you if you look at who is involved in the sustainable battle, it is women that are taking the lead roles and, and who are really kind of making sure that the world listens. This is not just something that you hear on the news once and then you kind of forget about it for a while. This is something that we all need to really take seriously. Now, I think people who listen to this podcast regularly will will get that you're quite progressive in terms of the construction industry and very open to change, very open to the idea that things can't be done the way they've always been. But that's not going to be the case across the whole industry. How do you read the kind of mood of the wider industry in embracing this change? And, and you know, for some, let's be honest, it will be a case of them saying, well, you know, we've got a bunch of women coming in telling us how to do it. We know how we've done it for years. It's worked fine. There will be a bit of that attitude, and it's a difficult one to break down sometimes. Yeah, look, this is not something that's going to happen overnight. But if you look at the last 20 years and the, the progression in the building industry, and we, we speak about this a lot in terms of all aspects of construction has progressed in terms of the technology, in terms of the, uh, the material science, all of these different aspects of construction, obviously health and safety, all of these things have progressed. And another element of it that has progressed without the shadow of a doubt, is the amount of women that are working in construction. And not only are they working in construction, they're taking lead roles in construction. I'm a red-blooded male and, you know, I like to be a dominant person in, in whatever I'm doing. But as soon as somebody comes along that, that you know, is able to contribute in any way, whether it's to design, whether it's to aesthetics, to the structure, to how something is done, I don't care who that person is, where they're from, what their nationality is, what their gender is. It just does not bother me. If they can have a positive influence, then they are more than welcome to come in and, and give, an, give an input. And that is what's happening. Look, there's no doubt about it. There are some countries that maybe there's still some cultural change that may have to happen before women are going to get into the positions that they deserve to be in. But like, it is happening, Steve. It is happening around the world. And I think, you know, I, I think sometimes the stereotypical uh, way of looking at uh, construction guys is they don't want women in, in construction and, and, you know, they're not open to that. I, I would not agree with that because I, I work with so many different women in construction at the moment and in other industries as well that, that, uh, that I'm involved in. And I love having a woman high up in, in, in the situation because they will always give you straight to the point and practical answers and and they will certainly challenge anything that uh, is presented and we need that when it comes to construction we need that but when it comes to the sustainability issue we need it even even more you're always going to have challenges nobody likes change it doesn't matter what it is whether it's simply changing the color of the paint in your room changing your car because you'll just kind of always want to stick with the same car no you need to change your car and try and go as carbon neutral as you possibly can but nobody likes that change and it takes a little bit of going into the, you know, out of your comfort zone to accept change no matter what it is. But when it comes to women in construction, I feel it's already started to happen. Maybe it's not happening quick enough, but it is starting and it is definitely progressing in the, in the, in the right direction. Fantastically said, as always, Pete. Good to speak to you again. We'll talk in a couple of weeks. Cheers, mate. I'm going to go home and hug, hug my mother and tell her I love her so much. <laughs> you do that. Cheers, Cheers Pete. Bye-bye. 
And that's all for this episode. Thanks to our guests, Emma and Sumele. Please share, like, follow, subscribe, comment, and anything else you can do to spread the word. Find us on social media and our website, constructive-voices.com. Don't forget the dash. And be sure to join us for our next episode. As always, thanks for listening. You're really helping us build something. Yeah.